in this series of messages, we've been talking a lot about driving. I shared last week about being stuck in traffic, and someone sent me this. You know, if you, if you drive at all, if you've ever been on the road any amount of time, you've been stuck in traffic. Now, maybe not right here, you know, in town, but, uh, but somewhere, somehow, you've been stuck in traffic. So someone sent me things to do while stuck in traffic. <clears throat> First one says, honk your horn a lot. That always helps get things moving. And this one, I, I don't understand. Maybe somebody can explain this to me later. Uh, roll down the window and ask the person next to you, is this the line for breaking dawn? I don't, I don't know what that is. I, um, play the exciting game, does my head fit in the glove compartment? Imagine you're in a line of cars waiting to run over Donald Trump. That just seems a little cruel to me, I'm harsh. I don't know about that. Turn on your windshield wipers. Have a race to see which one goes faster. <clears throat> Plow into a couple of those dorky Volkswagen Beetles. I said, oh, somebody said, oh. I, this, I think uh, I, I like this one a lot. Call the police, report a stolen car, give them the license plate number of the car in front of you. There you go. <laughs> but this is my favorite. Use the jumper cables to resuscitate roadkill. Clear. <laughs> now, the good news is I don't think they were serious, but the reality is that even if we are, are just on the road of life, there have been times when we've been, we've been stuck, when we've been stalled, when it seems like there's, there's nowhere we can turn, nowhere we can go. We, we don't seem to be making any progress. We're in the, the third week of a message series that we're calling Getting There. And we're talking about getting from where we are on the road of life to where it is we want to be, to our ultimate destination, which is heaven itself. And so far, we've learned some very important things. We've learned that there's a roadblock called sin that we have to face, that we have to understand how to get past that roadblock if we're ever going to have a relationship with God or be able to enjoy a fellowship with Him. We've also seen that there are a lot of things that people do to try to detour around that roadblock. I mean, everything from, from trying to be religious, to doing good things, to, to, to being a good moral person, even going to church. Uh, there's all kinds of things people do to try to get around that roadblock, but we've seen that the detours only lead us to one place, death. We have to stay off those detours. We have to put our faith and our trust in Jesus to receive eternal life, to receive the, the free gift of salvation. This morning, I want us to see that there's an exit. There's an exit available to all of us. There's a, an exit that can take us around the roadblock of sin, that can get us away from those detours that we try to make ourselves, that we try to do for, for ourselves. An exit that will put us back on the right road, will get us back on track onto a road that leads to a relationship with God. If you haven't figured it out already, in this series of messages, I'm using the scriptures that are part of what is sometimes called, you may have heard it referred to as the Romans Road of Salvation, or the Romans Road to Salvation. It's, it's several verses, all of them found in the book of Romans, the New Testament book of Romans, that can help us get from where we are to where we want to be. And this morning, we come to one of the most incredible sentences in the Bible. In fact, if someone was to tell me, you can just have one verse, 
You can only ever, again, for the rest of your life, have one verse, one verse to read, one verse to meditate on, one verse you know, to have your devotions about, one verse to preach and to teach on. You can only pick one. What is it? It's the verse that we're going to look at this morning. It's the verse that I think can mean more to us than anything else we've ever heard. It's a verse that tells us that not only has God provided a way out, a way uh, out of our biggest problems, but He's provided a way for us to have a relationship with Him, a way that ultimately leads us to where we want to go. We're all born with the need to be loved, to be loved by, to, by somebody. And, you know, people will do some crazy things for love, won't they? We all know people who have done just out-of-their-mind things for love. We're in, this, we're in this phase right now, have been for a few years, where everybody's all creative in how they, you know, men are, how they propose uh, to their, to their uh, uh, girlfriends or whatever, you know, and they, how they ask them to marry them. And, you know, that makes me feel bad. It's like I was born 20 years too, too early or something. Because all I, you know, we were just standing by the car, and I said, hey, you want to get married? And she said, sure. I mean, you know. I didn't fly her over a cornfield. Will you marry me, Vicky? Carved into the cornfield. I didn't take her to a ball game. It was up on the jumbotron. You know, I didn't. Uh, I didn't hide her engagement ring in a, uh, you know, in a slice of pie or anything like that. I mean, I just, you know, I just asked. <laughs> no pressure. We do some crazy things for love because we're we're born with the need to be loved, to be loved by somebody, to be loved in a way that we know that no matter what we do. We're still loved. How many people do we know, and some of them may even be sitting here this morning, who have spent a lifetime looking for real, true love? And they, you know, it's just like the old song says, they've looked for it in all the wrong places. They've looked for it in, in the bars and the clubs. They've looked for it in, in, in serial relationships, you know, going from one person to another to another. They've, they've looked for it in, in hasty marriages with, the, with the, the first person that ever paid any attention to them or the first person that would have them. And no matter what they try, no matter who they, uh, who they date, where they go, who they give their heart to, in the end they find that love is very elusive. The kind of love that they desire and that they need is, is very rare and it seems to slip from their grasp no matter what they do. Well, if that's you this, this morning or it's ever been you, can I tell you that I've discovered a place where anybody can go at any time, under any circumstances, and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are loved. Not only can we know we are loved, we can also know that we are loved with the greatest love ever given, given by the greatest lover in all the world. And that place is the cross. And that love is the love of God. See, I told you just a few minutes ago, if I had a conversation with each of you individually and I said, God loves you, you'd go, oh, I know that. That's not new. That's not anything fresh and exciting. I already knew that. But I'm going to tell you that we're going to look at some verses right here in the book of Romans that change everything. Change our perspective. Change our outlook. Change how we relate to, to each other. Change how we relate to God. It's found in Romans chapter 5. Go ahead and turn over there. Romans, as I said, is in your New Testament portion of your Bible. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come first. That's the Gospels, the story of Jesus. Then there's Acts, which is a history book. And then comes Romans. If you get over into 1 and 2 Corinthians, you're going too far. You need to turn back to the left and go back a, a little bit. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5. I'll read a couple of verses before the verse that we're going to spend most of our time on. You follow along. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be up on the screen as we go. We'll pick up in verse 6, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Now here it is. Here's that one verse. But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That's it. That's the verse that needs to to sink in for a moment. Because if that verse is true, if that verse means what it clearly says that everything changes. Everything's different. If that verse is true, then God's love is not just something that we have or we feel when things are going right, when we're doing right or doing well. It's something we can know we have when things are not going well and we're not doing good. And My prayer this morning is that from this point forward, For the rest of our lives, whenever we hear the words, God loves you, that our our perspective will completely change. That those words will mean more to us than they ever have. That they will never mean the same thing to us again. Because there are three things that the cross shows us about God's love. And here's the first one. The cross shows us that God's love is one of a kind. It is absolutely one of a kind, unique. The first part of that verse again, God showed His great love for us. Some translations, maybe your translation says, God demonstrates His own love for us. We know what a demonstration is, right? A demonstration is when somebody says, I'm going to show you how this works. I'm going to show you how this operates. I'm going to show you what this does. And Isn't that what God did on the cross? Isn't that what he showed? This is how my love operates. This is how my love works. This is what my love means. But it goes even beyond that because the word for shows, the word for demonstrate in your translation, in the original language is translated to prove. To prove. See, when it comes to love, talk is cheap. Anybody can say, I love you. That is not hard to say. But before we believe it, we can always ask this question. Where's the proof? How how do I know that this person who's saying those words to me, how do I know that they love me? I'll never forget my wedding day when Vicki and I got married. Mainly because it just boggled my mind that that a a woman like her would want to spend the rest of her life with a guy like me. I still wonder that sometimes. 
And I, and I just tell you, I'm just, just, just being open, being transparent. I, I really struggled with insecurity and jealousy when we were dating. Because, because I was afraid that, she, that one day she would come too. <laughs> right? I was afraid that one day she would wake up and realize how much better she could do than me. But on that day, July the 11th, 1987. Guys, you got to be able to do that. Be able to pull that date out just like that. On that day, we exchanged vows. And we exchanged rings. And when when the preacher asked her if she took me to be her husband, she said, I do. And everything changed. The guesswork was gone, right? The wondering, the worrying was over. She was wearing my ring. I was wearing her ring. And I, and I knew then, just like I know now, she loves me. And I, I still love to hear her say it. But I know whether she says it or not. She demonstrates it. She proves it in a thousand ways. God didn't give us a ring. He gave us His Son. And God, allowing His Son to die on the cross in our place, was His way of showing, of demonstrating, of proving beyond any doubt, He loves us. I know that there are things that come into our lives that cause us to to doubt God. Can I just tell you this about your doubts? We get all shook up if we doubt a little bit. Some people will teach us to, you know, oh, you can never doubt. Hey, Doubt is natural, folks. It's part of who we are. Things come into our lives. Struggles come into our lives. Problems, reversals. And if we're honest, we'll just admit, it makes us wonder, hey, God, are you up there? Are you seeing what's going on here? Do you really care about me? God, do you you love me? I'm going to just tell you, God's big enough. His shoulders are broad enough to handle your doubts and your questions and your fears. Some of us have lived through, or we may even be living in darkness that is so thick that it just makes, us real, makes it real hard for us to, to catch a glimpse of the light of God's love. But I'm going to tell you to remember this. The cross trumps everything. No matter what we're facing, no matter what we're going through, no matter what our situation in life, the cross trumps everything. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's loss. And there's struggle. But we cannot look at the cross and understand what happened there and really doubt God's love. We just can't do it. Real, true love never just says, I love you. That's just talk. Real love, true love is always visibly expressed. It's always tangibly demonstrated. True love is is something not, not just that we hear, not just that we feel, it's something that we can see. Jesus Christ hanging on the cross was God's love for everyone to see. God showed His great love for us. He demonstrated it. When Jesus was on the cross, here's how this works. Here's how my love works. Here's what it means. And you know what? That was so revolutionary. That was so, so different, so great, so 
otherworldly. That when the writers of the Bible wanted to express that, they basically had to invent a word. Now, the Greeks really have an advantage over us. We only have one word for love. We have to use it for everything, right? We have to use it to say, I love my wife, or I love my husband, and I love my truck, right? We have to use it to say, uh, I love my kids, and, we, and I love my dog, or I love my ki-. Well, people wouldn't say, I love my cat. That's unnatural. Um, <laughs> we have to use it to say, I love my friends, and I love pie. We just, we're, just, we're stuck with that one word to cover everything about how we think or how we feel about something. But the Greeks, and the the New Testament was written in the Greek language, they had lots of words for love. They had had a bunch of them. They had had one word that was just to express family affection, how parents felt about their children, you know, how siblings felt uh, about each other. They had, they had a word that referred to the love between friends. That's, that's the word uh, phileo. Phileo. I think I'm saying that right. Because we get our word philanthropy from that word. The, the city of Philadelphia uses that word in, in, in its name, which of course means the city of brotherly love. Right. And, and the Greeks also had another word, eros, eros, from which we get our word erotic, which is, refers to sexual love. And the love of God was so different from all of those other kinds of love that the biblical writers had to do this. They had to take another word that in itself was very rarely used. In fact, outside of the Bible, there's only one other example of it in, in you know, the records of the Greek language that we have at that time. But they had to take that and they took a word out of it. They took a portion of it and they coined the word agape. Agape. And that began to be used for the first time, never been used in common language before. It began to be used to describe the the, the holy, sovereign, one-of-a-kind, eternal, giving love of God. See, we don't love anybody like God loves us. We just don't. I don't care who it is. I don't care what relationship you're talking about. We don't love anybody like God loves us. And God loves us like nobody else loves us. The love of a a mother for a child or a husband for a wife or a a child for a father, none of it can compare to the love of God. It's one of a kind. It's unique in all the world. And then the cross shows us that God's love is unconditional. Unconditional. Listen to the verse again. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. There it is, folks. That's the reason they had to coin a word. Because they looked at this love expressed as it is in that verse. And they said, well, you know, it's, this is more than the love between a, a father and child or siblings for each other. That's not adequate. Um, this is something altogether different from how friends love one another, even, even the best friends that, have, that there's, there's ever been. And, um, and Eros, that's a completely different thing altogether, so that doesn't really apply. So what we're going to do is we're going to pull this word out that means no strings attached. Unconditional. And we're going to use that. To express God's incredible love. 
When we get our heads around that, folks, it will change everything about how we view God and how we relate to Him. God doesn't love us because we deserved His love. He loves us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us in spite of the fact that we are unlovable. God doesn't love us because we love Him. There was a time when loving Him had never even entered our minds. And the truth is, the way we're described in those verses uh, that are around Romans 5.8 uh, is not very flattering. I mean, in verse 6, we're told that we were helpless. That we were utterly helpless. Completely, entirely helpless. There was nothing we could do to make God love us. There was, there was nothing we could do to remove the roadblock. Nothing we could do to make ourselves worthy of God's love. Verse 6 also told us that we were sinners. Some translations say we were ungodly. That means we were ungodlike. We were nothing like God. We were living our lives independent of Him and, and, and against Him. So that means that, that God loved us even when we were totally opposed to Him and His will for our lives. God loves us. God loved us not when we were good, but when we were evil and while we were still sinners. In fact, verse 10 says it happened when we were His enemies. In other words, God's love was totally unmotivated by anything in us, by anything about us, by anything to do with us. And follow me here. That means that because His love is undeserved, and because His love is unconditional, and because His love is not dependent on us, His love will never, ever change. See, God's love is not tied to us being better, or trying harder, or making ourselves worthy. If that was the case, none of us would ever be loved. Because none of us is worthy of His love. And God didn't, didn't wait until we got better or until we straightened ourselves out or until we removed the roadblocks from our lives on our own. He loved us, the Bible says, while we were still sinners. You've heard me say it before. Jesus didn't die for good people. Jesus didn't die for church people. Jesus didn't die for sinless, perfect people. He died for sinners. He died for His enemies. He died for people whose lives and the way they were living was diametrically opposed to His Father and His will. Man, sometimes we need to let the love of God just blow our minds. I mean, there's... There's no way around it. Folks, if this verse means what it says, it changes. It changes almost everything I was taught in Sunday school, almost every sermon I heard growing up. Maybe you too. 
It changes the way I approach my relationship with God, the way I approach my daily life with God, my, my walk with Him. Changes if this verse is true. Now, don't miss this. God hates sin. Sin is a hateful, detestable thing to Him. Don't you ever leave here and say, I said something other than that. God hates every sinful thought and every sinful action. But do not miss this. He loves the people who think those thoughts and do those things. It's amazing to think about this. But there's not a person on this earth that God doesn't love. Not a one. God loves atheists and terrorists. He loves good people and bad people. He loves Republicans and Democrats. Hallelujah. He loves church people and people who never darken the door. He loves people who love Jesus. And he loves people who laugh at Jesus. Every single person in this world is unconditionally loved by the God who made them. In fact, he loves us so much that he didn't make us robots forced to do what he wants us to do. He loves us so much that he gave us the ability to choose. That's huge. You know, in, under the law, um, there's a term for forced love where someone forces themselves on you. What's that called? You can say it in church. It's called rape, isn't it? God doesn't force us to do anything. He allows us to choose. Because love is only love when it's chosen. God takes every one of us just as we are and just where we are. And, and it's only when we understand that God loved us while we were still sinners that we understand anything at all about God's love. If we think that God loves us because we deserved it somehow or because we, we earned it, or there was something we did that made Him love us. I mean, God, we followed these rules. We followed these steps. We did this and we didn't do these things. And so you have to love us. Let me tell you where that will put us. That will put us in a place of never being able to be secure in that love. Because that love depends on us, right? And on what we did and on what, what we do right. So the first time we mess up, the first time we make a mistake, the first time we make a wrong choice, what's the logical conclusion? God must not love me anymore because I haven't done the things I'm supposed to do to make Him love me. There's no security in that. What a terrible way to live. What a, what a terrible way to live, being unsure, uncertain, insecure in God's love for us. God's love is so unique and so unconditional. That, and, and get this, we can't do anything so good that we can make God love us more than He already does. And you flip that over, and that means that we can't do anything so bad 
that God will ever love us any less than he does right now. Changes everything. One more thing. The cross shows us that God's love is for everybody. It's for everybody. Listen to the verse one more time. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. To me, that verse just tells us everything we need to know about the love of God. Everything is wrapped up in that verse right there. That verse tells us that Jesus died for us. Well, who's the us? Sinners. Well, who are sinners? Everybody. See, that's what we spent the first couple of weeks making sure that we all understood. Romans 3.23 from a couple of weeks ago. All have sinned and, and, and fallen short of God's standard. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. A little further back up in, in, in Romans chapter 3, it's, we saw that no one is righteous, not even one, not a single one. So that means that Jesus died for everybody. There's not a sin on this earth that Jesus' blood has not been applied to. I mean, do this little exercise with me. Think about this. How many of your sins were in the future when Jesus died on the cross? Unless you're 2,000 years old. You know, and there's a couple of you. No, 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 no. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Every single sin was in the future. Jesus died for all the sin of all the world. And because he did, because in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not the church to himself, not good people to himself, the world to himself. It says God is no longer holding the sins of men against them. Jesus dealt with it. He dealt with it once and for all. Without the cross of Christ, without His death on the cross, we would never know what real love is. We, we would never know. Because human love is absolutely imperfect. Completely imperfect. We know how we love people, right? We, we love people because they what? Because they love us. And, and we love people uh, more because they love us more. And if somebody doesn't love us, well, then I'm just not going to love them. Right? We struggle to love people who don't love us or who don't, at least don't show it. But the love that God has shown us through, through Jesus is not like any other love. It's universal. It's given to everybody without condition, without strings attached. And so if we're looking for a, a real definition of love, we won't find it in a dictionary. We can only find it one place, at the cross, at the cross of Jesus Christ. There, there are two ways to measure the value of a gift. Uh, we can look at how much it costs, or we can look at the worthiness of the person who's receiving the gift. I mean, think about it like this. The more a gift costs, 
And the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love that's being expressed, right? You tracking with me? Okay. Now apply that standard to the gift that God has given us. That gift cost him everything. It cost him his son, his only son. Jesus' death on the cross was the cost of that gift. And who was that gift for? It was for helpless, ungodly, rebellious sinners who had no hope, no prayer, no chance apart from God's love and apart from the death of His Son on the cross. I think that's why I love preaching so much. Why I, why I believe that it's the greatest, most exciting privilege in the world. Because, folks, I can look at anybody, anywhere, any place, any time, dead in the eye, and say, God loves you. And never flinch. Never blink an eye. Because it's true. Because it's true. I get to share the greatest good news there ever has been. God loves us in spite of who we are. In spite of what we've done. That God will take us where we are. That He will accept us and He will pour out His love on us. He will change us. He will take away the roadblocks that separate us from Him. And He will bring us into His family. All we have to do is take the exit. And folks, it's easy to find. It's shaped like the cross. It's really quite amazing. At the birth of every one of our children, and we have six of them, I think. No, I know we have six. I just can't remember their names. Um, but but prior, let's say it this way. Prior to their birth, I had a, a similar experience with each one of them. Um, and, and parents, you can relate to this, okay? There was, there was excitement. There was joy. There was anticipation for that baby who was coming. I mean... Um, especially with the first couple of kids, you know, husbands, we go to our, with our wives to all the appointments, right? And we, we, you know, we carry the ultrasound picture around. And by the time the sixth one comes, you don't, you know, you tell your wife, hey, did you go to the doctor this week? I'm not really sure what happened. Did you? Is there any changes? You know, but all of that anticipation, all of that excitement was nothing compared to the arrival compared to the birth. When that, when, that, when that little guy finally arrived, all of a sudden, from a place in my heart that, that I had no idea could contain emotions this powerful and this strong, there came a love that just, quite frankly, is kind of frightening and overwhelming. And it was, and it, it was instant, and it was intense. And, and I can say this. I think I can get through this in this service without, without crying maybe. But I say this to my sons, to Ben, Sam, Nick, Jake, Luke, and number six. Grayson. I'm just kidding. Grayson. Who could forget Grayson? That love has never done anything but grow. 
through all these years. None of you have been perfect. None of my sons have been perfect. In fact, some of you have caused your mother and me some sleepless nights. We're just being honest. And I, you know, we got a couple of couple more that will probably cause us some more sleepless nights. But there has never been an instant when my heart was filled with anything less than love for you. Not an instant. Because I don't just love you when you've done right or done well or done good. I love you when you've struggled and when you've messed up and when you've fought me and you've been rebellious. Because I want you to remember this. I love you for who you are and not what you do and not what you've done but for who you are. Max Lucado said one time, having children was better than any theology book. I think that's true. It teaches us more about God than anything. Having kids allows us to get get a, a glimpse, an inkling of what God's love is all about. Sometimes I'll tease my boys. I know that you're surprised by that, that I would tease them, but One of my favorite things is to come in when two or three or four of them are in the kitchen when I get home at the end of the day and say, hello, girls. But sometimes I'll I'll tear up or I'll act like I'm I'm choking up and I'll quote that great theologian uh, from from the Austin Powers movies, Dr. Evil. And, uh, And I'll say, you're my special boy. But the truth is, I'm not teasing. Because they are special to me. They're all my special boys. Let me tell you something. The cross shows us that we are all special to God. His love is one of a kind. His love is unconditional. And His love is for everybody. This exit is for everybody. And we need to hear that. We need to to know that. We've got to understand that. And what's more, everybody we know needs to hear that. At least once in their lives. They need to hear. They need to know. God loves you. That's the story we need to be sharing with anybody who will listen. Anytime. Anywhere. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.